This week, Pacific Drilling Stakeholders Reach Global Settlement, iHeart Files New Plan and Disclosure Statement, Momentive Cramdown Trial Begins. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Stephen Opper, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, legal analyst Teresa Lee sits down with senior distressed debt analyst Kyle Owusu to discuss Venezuela, Argentina, and Steinoff. It's Sunday, August 26th. The week began with an announcement from Pacific Trilling that Quantum Pacific and the ad hoc group of creditors reached a settlement. Under the settlement, QP would commit to purchase a total of $200 million in first and second lien exit notes. In addition, QP would commit $50 million through a private placement as part of the plan's rights offering. The rights offering available for term and note holders would be reduced by the same $50 million. Assuming the same subscription price as detailed in the plan filed on July 31st, the $50 million would essentially transfer 6.4% of the reorganized equity to QP and away from debt holders. On Thursday, the court granted the debtors exit financing, including the $700 million in first lien notes and $300 million in second lien notes. The second lien notes are committed to and backstopped by the ad hoc group. Credit Suisse will market the $300 million second lien notes on an uncommitted basis. In exchange for their commitment, the ad hoc group will receive $24 million in either new second lien notes or cash if the commitment letter is terminated. It is unclear as to the effect on the existing plan, if any, but the U.S. trustee also appointed an official committee of unsecured creditors on Thursday. Earlier in the day, the U.S. trustee Andrea Schwartz said that it should not come as a surprise if a UCC is appointed. Al Togut of Togut, Siegel & Siegel, as counsel for the debtors, said that he hoped to talk the U.S. trustee, quote, off this ledge. Togut stressed that in the debtors' view, quote, there's really no useful purpose to be served by having an unsecured creditors committee, especially at this late stage in this case. Pacific Drilling's confirmation hearing is proposed for October 24th. On Thursday, the iHeart Media debtors filed their much-anticipated disclosure statement related to the second amended plan, which was also filed on Thursday. The plan, which the debtor estate does not yet have the support of the Unsecured Creditors Committee, features a revised treatment to certain creditor classes and slightly increased distributions to secured exchange 11 and a quarter PGM claims. The debtors also updated the estimated allowed claims amounts for term loan claims and PGN notes claims from the amounts included in the previous version of the plan filed on August 5th. The updated timeline sets a confirmation hearing date for October 29th. For the first time, the disclosure statement estimates recoveries under the plan. The debtors also note in the disclosure statement that considering the alternatives available, they believe the plan maximizes value for all stakeholders. Although, quote, the debtors continue to have active conversations with other interested parties regarding potential alternative transactions and remain willing to continue dialogue with Liberty. Momentum's remand crammed down rate trial kicked off on Wednesday, with Judge Robert Drain presiding over the first two days of the three-day trial this week. The start of the trial comes almost four years to the date, after Judge Drain's extensive and wide-ranging bench ruling confirming the debtor's plan on August 26, 2014. As in the summer of 2014, and despite admonishments from Judge Drain then and now, the parties did not reach a consensual resolution to the cram-down dispute before the commencement of Wednesday's trial. The reorganized debtors argue that there was no efficient market with respect to the replacement notes issued under the plan, and that therefore the formula 
interest rates applied by Judge Drain were appropriate. In contrast, on the other side, the senior notes trustees say that there was in fact an efficient market for the debt and that a market rate of interest could be determined and utilized for the cram-down notes. Even assuming an efficient market existed, the two sides also differ on the appropriate cram-down rate of interest for the replacement notes. Wednesday's proceedings concluded testimony from the organized debtors experts, William Darrow of Molis and Professor David C. Smith. Smith focused on his opinion that no efficient market existed for the replacement notes, while Darrow, assuming an efficient market existed, opined as to the appropriate rate. Thursday's proceedings included testimony from the first lien and one and a half lien notes trustees experts, Professor Bradford Cornell and Christopher Kearns of the Berkeley Research Group. The trustees experts focused on their opinions that there was in fact an efficient market for the debt that could be used to determine a market rate of interest, as well as their respective calculations of those rates of interest. Acknowledging that his ruling, quote, will be an important precedent in cramdowns and future confirmation disputes in all Chapter 11 cases, Judge Drain asked the parties to think about the effect of the standard that they are each asking him to adopt. The unique nature of the trial on remand was highlighted by Judge Drain, who commented that it was, quote, an unusual situation akin to, quote, putting on a wet bathing suit. Closing arguments are scheduled to take place on Tuesday, September 4th. On Monday evening, the Permisa Oversight Board posted the final report by Cobra and Kim, the independent investigator it retained to probe Puerto Rico's public debt. According to the report, the $74 billion of bond debt and $49 billion in unfunded pension liabilities were catastrophic for an economy of Puerto Rico's size. The investigators laid the blame at the feet of the government. When faced with a declining population, increasing unemployment, budget issues, and escalating pension liabilities, the political branches and the GDB turned to the debt markets and short-term fixes, like the SUT and swap arrangements, rather than implementing long-term reforms, according to the investigators' findings. Also in Puerto Rico, the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosselló met an extended deadline and on Monday presented a revised fiscal plan as part of the process to revise the plan to incorporate material new information. The new information includes full fiscal 2018 revenue actuals, revised federal disaster spending estimates, and adjustment to demographic projections. The board is aiming for certification of the Commonwealth fiscal plan by September 21st. And finally, in the Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain, late on August 17th, issued her much-anticipated summary judgment ruling in the dispute between Employees Retirement System of Puerto Rico, and ERS bondholders. In a blow to the bondholders, Judge Schwenk concluded that the bondholders did not have a perfected security interest in any of the pledged property at issue. On Monday, Reorg published an article framing Judge Schwenk's ruling as one of several moving parts in a series of disputes related to ERS bonds, likely to affect other disputes. Other top red stories of the week were 1. New Coverage Serta Simmons brings in Evercore amid uncertainty surrounding largest customer mattress firm. Number two, middle market new coverage. PHI struggles to raise refinancing debt to address 2019 maturities. Number three, Monotronics discloses discussions with 9 and 8th note holder group exchange transactions proposed with no agreement reached. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Stephen, and greetings one and all. The week ahead, well, it's the last week of August, wherein we bid the summer bon voyage, 
and it's traditionally a time for those of y'all on the desk to practice your Nerf football skills. It's also the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey here in Houston. How well I remember watching the water creep up to my stoop. Anyways, on Monday, August 27th, we have DS Statement Objections due in iHeart and Toys Taj, and we're also due to get earnings from David's Bridal. Tuesday, August 28th, we have the David's Bridal Earnings Call at 10 a.m., J. Crew's earnings after the close with a conference call at 4.30 p.m. ET. Puerto Rico's weekly Treasury single account report is also due. That usually drops in the evening. Wednesday, August 29th, is a second lien commitment objection deadline for Pacific Drilling. We also have earnings from Algico Scotsman, which calls itself the world leader in modular space and storage solutions. This company is a big provider of man camps for roughnecks in the Permian and the Eagleford. There's a couple of modular barracks in Odessa, and I think one in San Angelo, among other places. And by the way, anybody looking to do something different, they're still looking for truck drivers out in West Texas and New Mexico. Thursday, August 30th, we have a sale and settlement hearing for Rex Energy and a DS and Prop Co. 1 exclusivity extension hearing in the Toys R Us business and an omnibus hearing for Pacific Drilling. Okay, and now brace yourselves, August 31st. Yes, it's the Friday before a three-day weekend. Experienced market professionals will know what to do. I'm going to be smoking a pork shoulder along with my great-great-grandma's South Georgia vinegar sauce. Any of y'all in Houston, stop by and grab you a plate. And that's all from me. Stephen, back to you. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week... Legal analyst Teresa Lee sits down with senior distressed debt analyst Kyle Wusu to discuss current and topical happenings in Venezuela and Argentina, as well as the state of multinational company Steinhoff. Handing it to you, Teresa. I'm Teresa Lee, and I'm here with senior distressed debt analyst Kyle Wusu, who's talking to us today about two distressed Latin American sovereign situations, Venezuela and Argentina, as well as the multinational company Steinhoff. Prior to joining Rear Research, Kyle was a research analyst at Loeb King Capital Management, where he focused on merger arbitrage, long short, high yield, and special situations. So Kyle, thanks for joining me today. As things are slowing down here in the U.S. due to the upcoming Labor Day holiday, they certainly seem to be heating up overseas. There are a number of situations that are moving a lot. So let's start with Venezuela. Great. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first about the Crystal X decision that was handed down earlier this month in the District of Delaware. Just this past week, Judge Leonard Stark ordered the court clerk to issue a writ of attachment over PDVH shares. Does this mean that Crystal X can enforce the writ and sell shares? It is a victory for Crystal X, but actually the sale of the PDVH shares can't begin until the court issues an order of sale. And a motion for stay pending appeal can be filed seven days after the writ is served, and so can a motion to intervene. So it takes Crystal X one step closer, but still in wait and see mode. Now, for our listeners who are new to this dispute, can you give us some background on Crystal X and why it's fighting with Venezuela? Crystal X International Corporation holds a $1.2 billion judgment against Venezuela and registered that judgment in Delaware. The judgment is related to a, um, a mine that was expropriated and nationalized um, under Chavez. Crystal X then tried to collect on that judgment by executing on property that is nominally owned by PDVSA, specifically shares of stock that PDVSA owns in a Delaware corporation, PDV Holding. Crystal X's theory was that PDVSA is the alter ego of Venezuela, making PDVSA's property subject to execution for payment of Venezuela's debt. 
Now in August, Judge Leonard Stark issued an order and opinion ruling that Crystalex showed at least a probable cause for finding that PDVSA is extensively controlled by Venezuela. Judge, Judge Stark addressed two main questions. One, whether you need an independent basis of subject matter jurisdiction over a third party when seeking to impose liability on that third party to collect a judgment owed by a debtor. And two, whether Crystalex showed at least a probable cause for finding that PDVSA is extensively controlled by Venezuela. The court said that an alter ego theory can be raised as a basis for primary or secondary liability. You do not need to establish an, ind- an independent basis for subject matter jurisdiction because the creditor is seeking to establish a limited finding. That is, that the property nominally held in the name of the third party is the property of the debtor, not that the alleged alter ego itself is liable. Turning to the alter ego argument, the court analyzed the Banchek test and found that Crystalex met its burden under the extensive control prong. Relevant factors include um, whether the sovereign nation uses the instrumentality's property as its own, whether the sovereign nation ignores the instrumentality's separate status, um, and questions of that sort. And the court looked at factors including press releases um, where PDVSA is essentially um, admitted to or, or, or explicitly said that it was uh, that it was part of Venezuela or owned by Venezuela. There were appointments made by Maduro to PDVSA. Um, of, of officials that were part of the, the Venezuelan military that didn't have oil and gas background. And so the court analyzed all those factors and concluded that there was extensive control. So PDVH owns Citgo Inc. and shares of Citgo holding are pledged to security underlying the PDVSA eight and a half senior secure 2020 bonds. Uh, and on those bonds, um, $840 million are owed in October. Now, a creditors committee represented by Milstein said that it is exploring options to ensure that assets available outside of Venezuela, belonging to the Bolivarian Republic, PDVSA, and Electricidad de Caracas, or ELICAR, are, quote, available to satisfy claims of all creditors. What implications does this have for Crystalex? So Rosneft and PDVSA bonds, the PDVSA bonds maturing in 2020, both hold perfected first priority security interests in 49.9% and 50.1% of Citgo holding. Rosneft said in a letter to the Delaware court that the court should hold a hearing regarding how to structure a court-supervised sale process. The letter added that Rosneft has a suite of rights and remedies available to address the sale of PDVH. Right. So it seems like this uh, this litigation still could change and move quite a lot going forward. So we're going to keep an eye on that for sure. Uh, now let's move to another sovereign situation in Latin America, which seems to have been resurrected, and that is the government of Argentina. Just last week, Aldo Rojo, chairman to the board of CLISA, presented a resignation after he admitted paying bribes to former government officials under the ongoing investigation known as Notebookgate. Can you explain a little bit about this corruption scandal and what its potential impacts are going to be? The corruption scandal known as Notebookgate involves records kept by a former Kirchner administration driver detailing about $160 million worth of bribes from construction and infrastructure companies to government officials. Clisa is a leading Argentine infrastructure manager. As you noted, Clisa's chairman and shareholder, Aldo Roggio, admitted August 15th before Judge Claudio Bonadio and prosecutor Carlos Sternelli 
to paying bribes to former government officials under the Kirchner administration. Roggio was subpoenaed as part of the ongoing investigation. Other companies on our radar include energy companies Albanese and Compania Henreal Combustibles, or CGC, and construction company Impesa. Now, Reorg reported a little while ago that the Republic's bonds have dropped significantly in the secondary market, which is one of the factors that is causing bond issuers to shy away from Argentine companies. The Argentine Central Bank Authority and the Ministry of Economy also recently announced new measures amid a peso sell-off. The Argentinian entities are seeking to restore investors' confidence in the country's capacity to achieve the new targets under the $50 billion three-year standby agreement signed last month with the IMF. Can you tell us a little about what's going on with the company that has caused such a massive devaluation of the currency? What most people point to initially is the the fact that you've had an appreciation of the U.S. dollar um, and an upward shift in U.S. interest rate, rates. But in addition to that, Argentina has been grappling with a drought that's led to a sharp decline in our agricultural production and export revenue. Um, Brazil is Argentina's top trading partner, and Brazil itself is, is, is having its own issues. The World Bank actually just lowered its GDP forecast um, because of Brazil's ongoing trucker strike and, and political uncertainty. Um, you've also had an erosion of, of confidence in, in the central bank. The central bank cut rates when inflation expectations were above the new, the new inflation targets. And uh, many said that the decision called into, a, into, into doubt the central bank's independence. Um, and so you had that confluence of factors. And, and as that occurred, investors began to start selling their, their assets in, in pesos. And the government was having trouble paying its bills for the rest of the year. Um, and that, those factors were cited in, in two separate IMF uh, releases. Great. So thanks for that update on Argentina. We'll definitely be looking at that going forward. Um, finally, let's turn to Steinhoff. The company announced just last week that they intend to restructure 10 billion euros of debt by the end of October and expect to use an English scheme for restructuring. Can you tell us about that deal? Sure. So Steinhoff's creditors are going to receive three-year 10% pick take-back paper at par plus accrued interest and agreed fees, uh, the the there is a December thirty first, twenty twenty one maturity long stop. The Steinhoff Europe AG creditors are going to benefit uh, in part from first liens over shares of Steinhoff Europe AG, um, Mobile Stripes, which is a, a a holding company that owns U.S. Uh, mattress retailer Mattress Firm, uh, and several other entities uh, that sit within the Steinhoff Europe Group. The Steinhoff Finance holding creditors, which comprise the convertible bonds, are going to receive shares, security over shares in finance holding and PropGo Hemisphere, as well as finance holding assets. The interesting or one interesting construct on the on the finance side is there is a cash payout mechanism providing for a cash paydown from Steinhoff Investments Holding Proprietary Limited or SIHPL, which is a guarantor of the 21 and 22 converts. Uh, in the region of 25% um, by March 31st, 2019, as well as an undertaking to consider quarterly payments on an ongoing basis. SIHPL has granted the the 21 and 22 converts a 1.6 billion euro deferred guarantee, um, which will reduce with any SIHPL paydown. Um, 
And you've also got the parent co, which is Steinhoff International Holdings NV. There is a parent co deferred guarantee of roughly, call it seven and seven point six billion euros. Um, now that deferred guarantee uh, is going to cover a maximum amount uh, equal to the restated primary obligations plus pick interest, but the pick interest is capped at 5% per annum uh, for the the SIEG, the Steinhoff Europe AG creditors. There is no pick interest cap applying to debt instruments that are issued by Steinhoff Finance Holdings. Now moving to the the Hemisphere entity, which is the company's PropGo. Um, again, similar construct where where you've got seven hundred fifty you ha, you have a seven hundred fifty million facility. That facility will be restated um, into in it, it will be exchanged rather into uh, take back paper uh, with ten percent pick interest. Um, that that the, those creditors will benefit from a first ranking lien over Hemisphere assets. Um, an interesting element there is. There's an ongoing analysis of, of whether intercompany payables from Hemisphere to Steinhoff Finance are valid, and if they're valid, where those payables rank vis a vis the new facility. If the claims are found to rank peri pursue, then they're going to benefit from terms applicable to the new facility. And if more than 228 million euros of prepayments have been made to the new facility and those prepayments have not been paid pro rata on the finance claims, then a catch-up payment on those finance claims is required. And after the catch-up payment, all future disposal proceeds are going to be paid on a pro rata basis across the new facility and the Steinoff finance claims. As far as next steps, Steinoff is looking to implement the restructuring around mid-October uh, through a consent solicitation process for the converts, an English CVA for the Europe AG debt, um, and an English scheme of arrangement for the Stripes US liabilities. A scheme requires support from creditors representing 75% of the schemed debt by value and 50% by class. A CVA requires 70%, 75% in value, sorry, and cannot compromise secured claims without the creditor's consent. Another uh, sort of tr- event that we're going to be on the lookout for is Steinhoff Asia Pacific Group Holdings refinancing roughly 140 million USD to 180 million of working capital facilities. Um, and in the in the midst of that refinancing, that entity may grant additional security over certain assets of the Asia PAC business for the benefit of the refinancing parties. Wow, that is definitely a lot of things going on. And to add to all that, the company is actually under siege from a lot of different fronts. So the JSC Limited, which is a stock exchange in Johannesburg, just this past week announced that it would impose a public censure against Steinhoff, as well as a fine of 1 million rand, or about 60,000 euros, as a result of breaches of the listings requirements. And on August 8th, Steinhoff shareholders filed a class action in the Johannesburg High Court, alleging that Steinhoff and certain executives had repeatedly violated capital markets laws and manipulated Steinhoff's balance sheets for years. And the preliminary complaint volume amounts to approximately 12 billion euros. So, Cal, can you tell us what is going on with the company and why all of this is rising to the surface now? What can we expect to see going forward? I think it's hard to tell exactly why it's rising to the surface now. But but one reason I suspect is just because there's there's more available information to work with uh, in, in a shareholder lawsuit. 
Um, for example, the company recently re- released financials showing a restatement um, of, of 3.1 billion of cash as of fiscal year end 2017, all the way down to 620 million. I mean, that's just one figure amongst many. And so I think that with all of those revelations, we all we all knew um, that there was fraud. The company acknowledged the fraud, but once you start to see uh, hard numbers come out. Um, and especially numbers like that that are, that are pretty glaring, I think that it just provides uh, for a lot more material. And so maybe that's why you're starting to see a lot of these cases come to the forefront now. So on a separate but related note, Reorg also started taking a look at Serta Simmons, which we reported is being advised by Evercore as the company evaluates various options to address uncertainty surrounding the financial health of its largest customer, which is Mattress Firm. Just this past week, Serta announced a deal to merge with online startup Tuft and Needle, and sources told Reorg that Serta's concerns have developed in light of recent reports of a potential mattress firm bankruptcy, and Evercore is assisting Serta in evaluating the impact that that would have. Now, Mattress Firm, of course, is a subsidiary of the South Africa-based Steinhoff International Holdings NV, and Mattress Firm has engaged Guggenheim Securities and Sidley Austin as it considers in- and out-of-court restructuring options. Steinhoff bought Mattress Firm for $3.8 billion in August 2016, or 11.1x 2016 forecasted EBITDA. But Mattress Firm reported a widening EBITDA loss to 94 million euros in the fiscal first half of 2018 from a year earlier, and revenue fell 17% to 1.26 billion euros year over year. Reorg has reported that Mattress Firm is considering raising more money, restructuring through a Chapter 11 filing or insolvency proceedings in the UK, and turning around its operations. So can you tell us a little bit about the state of play with Mattress Firm specifically? Sure. So as you mentioned, I mean, Mattress Firm's EBITDA has been negative. Um, you've had you've had business disruptions caused in part by store rebranding and the exiting of a supply agreement with Temper Sealy. Um, some people argue that the, there's there's just simply too many stores. I mean, when if you walk outside of our office in New York, there's a mattress firm right down the street. Um, there's several in my neighborhood. I mean, they're all over. They are all over the place. Um, and so there there are there are probably uh, store closures going on. Um, and so that that, that portfolio of uh, that portfolio just needs to be uh, right sized in general. And then you have on top of all that uh, the introduction of everything that's going on with the parent company um, and it's just it's it's sort of a perfect storm and so evercore as you noted um, is broadly advising serta um, and serta will be merging with with tuft and needle um, what's interesting about that is that tuft and needle is actually involved in a litigation with mattress firm um, mattress firm filed a lawsuit against the startup in october 2017 for false unfair dilutive and disparaging advertising practices um, mattress in in in, the, in in those filings, it was said that mattress firm made an offer to acquire control of Tuft and Needle through a minority investment back in 2017. So these these companies are both very familiar with each other. Um, Advent Inter- International owns Serta, and so it's really it's interesting to try and think about what what the strategy could be here. Um, you know, Advent could be looking to insulate its portfolio company, its portfolio from from mattress firm effects, or at least mitigate uh, any effects of, of mattress firm volatility in the near term. 
Um, the the release said that Serta will be merging with the online startup to expand its offering in the direct to, cons- to consumer segment. So if Mattress Firm uh, worsens, uh, Serta has a, a new revenue channel um, in the form of this this direct to consumer segment. If Mattress Firm turns itself around, now Serta has two competing revenue channels, which allows the company to diversify its revenue. So that could be what what's going on here. Um, but we will continue to monitor the situation because it's certainly very interesting. Definitely. Thank you so much, Kyle, for joining me today. And thank you to all of our listeners for uh, listening in. And we look forward to having you all back next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all REARG Research podcasts on our media page or If you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Stephen Opper, and this has been The Week in Reorg.